Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now, here's your host, Nick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Over the last several years, the horror genre has become more and more ubiquitous. Indeed, it's hard not to notice the mainstreaming of tales of terror as a massive movement in the world of entertainment, particularly in films and television. Scary stories fill the large and small screens and make lots and lots of money. Although it's nice to see our world gain acknowledgement for its ingenuity and profitability, it's hard for me to see this mainstreaming of horror as a good thing for its inventiveness and creativity. Though gaining respect at the box office, the studio executives still have little respect for anything but the profits. They think of horror as franchise, as something they know now how to sell, and think they know horror because they've seen all of the Conjuring films. A new generation of horror fans wears the t-shirts and knows Annabelle and Michael and Freddie and purges and grudges and all that, but have never seen a movie by George Romero, Takashi Miike, James Whale, Dario Argento, David Cronenberg, Karen Kusama, or Clive Barker, Trailblazers all. Good horror is brave storytelling, unafraid of tapping into the deepest, darkest corners of our souls, touching our fears with stories that we feel, not just see. I've said before that horror is rude and often loud, but true horror is also transformative as well as transgressive. I'm happy to see our genre be commercially successful, but it's a little maddening that mainstream film critics now consider themselves to be knowledgeable about a genre they have little knowledge of or passion for. Places like the LA Times and other such mainstream publications seem to be a reverse barometer for genre films. It seems that if they don't like it, I will, and vice versa. The franchising and marketing of horror is wearing away its edges, stripping the genre of the boldness that makes horror so horrible in the first place. The true new creators in the forefront of the most creative film genre extent are blocked from view by movies with numbers in the title. And though it might make for healthy box office, I fear for the movies that have something new and transgressive on their minds. 
Speaking of transgressive, one of the films that I did that had the most controversial reactions was Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. The mother-son relationship was a taboo of the sort rarely broken by major studio movies. But with King's name in the title, we were given more license than I ever imagined by Columbia Pictures. The star of that movie, Alice Krieger, embraced the role of Mary Brady with an enthusiasm and ferocity that makes it a landmark part in horror cinema. Alice, whose roles are many and amazingly diverse, will join us for a conversation about her life in the cinema after this. Heavy Metal Magazine and the new fantasy, sci-fi, and horror platform Everscapes are releasing an exclusive two-part series of NFTs backed by George C. Romero, son of George A. Romero, as a precursor to The Night of the Living Dead. The Rise explores the story before the worst night on Earth with an amazing collection of exclusive NFTs. Immerse yourself in this terrifying saga through a 100-piece limited-edition NFT collection that includes rare art, 3D digital sculpts, motion comics, and more, all brought to life, or death, for the very first time. There will be two waves of terror with the first 50-piece set launching on Halloween. Visit everscapes.io now. That's E-V-E-R-S-C-A-P-E-S dot I-O now. Coming soon to dread, ditched. Desperate to escape an overturned ambulance, a group of paramedics are trapped with violent prisoners. The group quickly discover that they are the victims of an ambush with the perpetrators hunting them down one by one. Ditched will be available on demand and digital everywhere on January 18th. Pre-order on iTunes now. Ditched. So, Uppington, South Africa, the birth of Alice Krieger. Tell me uh, about that. Your father was a doctor, your mother a clinical psychologist, Tell me about uh, what uh, early life in South Africa was like for you. Well, I was, um, first of all, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm you. so happy to see you. It's been way, way too long. Um, I was born into enormous privilege in that at that time in South Africa, I was white. Um, and into a very loving and stable family. My mum was not a clinical psychologist at that time. She was a mum. Uh. She had, she had uh, trained as a social worker with a particular interest in, in small children, the welfare of small children. Um, but when she married my dad, that he had just come back from World War II and he joined the practice of someone he had grown to know while he was at the front as a doctor. Um, and so they went to live in the Kalahari, which is oh my. an astonishing red desert. Um, it has a wide river running through it, rather like the Nile runs through um, this, the, the Sahara. Um, which is enormously fertile and it has a floodplain. And all along that floodplain, along the banks of the river, there are little towns, there weren't many, but Uppington was one of them. 
Um, and so my dad was a doctor there, essentially a flying doctor, because he flew hundreds of miles to patients, a bit like in the Australian outback. Well, this is um, like the Sands of the Kalahari, the movie well, that yes. Stewart was in. Yeah, very yes, much. exactly. That red, extraordinary desert. Um, and we had a farm. My dad was a doctor, but he'd come from farming stock. And so farming was deeply sort of ingrained in his consciousness. So we had a farm in the Kalahari and we used to go there at weekends. Um, or, or at any rate, we quite often went without my father because he worked so hard. Um, and when I was eight, he decided that the pace would kill him. So he requalified as a radiologist and we he worked at various training hospitals so I uh, lived briefly in Johannesburg briefly in Cape Town and then they settled in a place called Port Elizabeth and I went to high school there and then I went to university uh, to study psychology in which I was very interested um, I had always wanted to be a ballerina Yes, the and world of I dance back in there. <laughs> when I was 16, my dad said, no, 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 it's <laughs> not a life. It will be over by the time you're 40. You are smart enough. You need to have an academic career, mm. at least. Um, so I, I, with enormous regret, hung up my dancing shoes and concentrated on my studies and went to university. But, so you studied psychology, but also literature. Um, so Well, I, you know, it's a basic arts degree, right? I see. And because yeah. I was going to be a clinical psychologist, I went to this particular university, which was very near home, because it had a very experimental bias, the psychology. Uh, was was that Rhodes? Yes, yes. Ah. I see. You've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, because I was going to be a clinician in on a postgraduate subsequent level. So I went to this university and I had one free credit. You had to do a language and mm -hmm. I was doing psychology. So I had to do a language. In fact, I did Latin and English and I had one free credit in my first year. And my parents said, why don't you do a year of drama? It'll do you good. You know, it'll be good for your personality. Uh -huh. Well, they lived to regret that. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because um, one thing led to another and I wound up um, getting a Bachelor of Arts degree with majors in drama and psychology. And I did honors in, in drama and then I went to acting school in England. And um, that was a three-year course in England, which was wonderful because it yeah. was purely practical. I'd had a very academic training at university, although we had, we did plays, but it was basically about, you know, history of theatre, studying plays, studying dramatic literature, all of that. So it was wonderful to do a three-year course. And then I got very, very lucky well, your first feature film role was in a movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1981 with Chariots of Fire. But there's a lovely story attached to that. I'd love to hear that. Which is, um, just rein me in if I 
digress too far. This Never. Potted history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the third year at Central, you, you, the year was divided into two streams, and you all did plays, and one lot went to one theatre in the provinces and another lot went to another theatre. And I was incredibly fortunate to go to a beautiful, tiny the Georgian theatre in, in the north, way up in Richmond. Um, not Richmond, Virginia, but Richmond in the yes. north of England. Um, it was this beautiful little theatre constructed. The interior was entirely of wood. And it was as if you were in the inside of a violin sounding box. And we were doing Twelfth Night and I was playing Olivia. And what happened was that the second year students in the tech course did the stage management for the shows for the third year students final performances. And I had managed to construct the most extraordinarily elaborate hairstyle for Olivia. <sighs> I had to go in four hours early to pin curl my hair <laughs> up into this extraordinary, enormous head of curls. And so there I was four hours before in the one dressing room that we all shared. And a lovely young woman called Samantha was there ironing ruffs because she was costume mistress, ruffs and cuffs for this particular show. And we got to be really good friends. And after it was all over and the term ended and we all went our separate ways about, so the term ended at the end of July and in January, February, or maybe even March of the next year, 1980, I got a, it was before email and such like, or, yeah. or cell phones. I got a call from the school saying, um, an alumnus of yours is trying to get hold of you. Samantha needs to speak to you urgently. And this is her number. So I called Samantha and she said, well, my aunt is casting Chariots of Fire and I'm temping for her. Oh and God. I think you would be perfect for this role. Send me your picture. So I sent her my picture. And they had been trying to cast an opera singer in the role because Hugh felt they had to have an opera singer. And Milena Cannonero, the brilliant designer who was doing the costumes, um, said, no, you, 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 you're, you're quite wrong. <laughs> she, will, she will sing for about two minutes and she will have to act for the rest of the show. You need an actress. You can lip sync an actress. Yeah. And that's what they did. Unfortunately, it's not my voice in Charity of Fire. Anyway, blow me down, I got the job. And it was such a blessing because it became a springboard for pretty much one thing to follow another. Well, so, such a high visibility part in yeah. such a high visibility movie. And it also gives you uh, uh, credence as a seasoned performer, even though it's one movie in. Yes, it was just the kindness of Samantha and, and the smarts of Milena to say, no, 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 we don't want an opera singer, we yeah. want an actress. But it was also your ability as an actress that got you that role. Well, it wasn't really 
no, it wasn't proven at that point. Yeah. No, were... but he believed you <laughs> and your your audition. I suppose I must have done an audition. I can't remember. It was so yeah. long ago. Well, it's very interesting because of the broad range of roles you've had. You've done a number of what might be considered cult movies that are not the mainstream, like the Chariots of Fire movies. You've done those as well, and the kitchen sink dramas, the British kitchen sink dramas and so much. But one of the things about British trained actors in particular is their willingness to perform in all media. And it's not slumming to work on television. It's not, it, you know, it's television, it's movies, it's theater, it's radio. I mean, it, and in your case, even video games. Uh, it's, it's just a, a vast panoply of media that, that British trained actors attack uh, with the same relish, no matter what the media. I am just overjoyed to be working. Yes. <laughs> but also it's very very interesting to work across different mediums and and there is brilliant writing in television now more um, than ever yeah yes so i mean there always was but it's it's there is such a diversity of material um possible now on television um, or I don't even know if television is the right word to use anymore. Yeah. I mean, it comes through your phone, your your computer, your monitor, your television screen. Um, there are so many different platforms, so many different um, possibilities for writers. Um, it's a wonderful time to 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 be an actor, and I'm. Very fortunate, really, still to be working. And I am indeed immensely fortunate. I don't know how it happened that I've worked across so many genres within the, 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 the visual medium of, of film tele and, and television. Um, well, there's I, I, the, the variety of roles. You go from ghost story which was you know i had seen chariots of fire and then ghost story and those were one two punch for me as far as your your work was concerned um from ghost story to doing spending three years in the royal shakespeare company um and then later on to sleepwalkers and barfly i mean you it, it, the variety of roles is delicious and not all actors are so diverse um I've been very lucky because that diversity, I just want to say something about the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, when I finally, when the penny dropped for me in Sleepwalkers, <laughs> when I got her, yeah. I decided that I would play her as a tragic Shakespearean heroine. Mm. And that's the wonderful scope that horror gives you or some horror that you can go so long as you inhabit it fully and truthfully as you possibly can it doesn't matter how big your brush strokes are and how how big you make your canvas it doesn't have to be um so realistic because it's stretching 
our sense of reality. Well, and with respect for the role, you know, uh, some people would see it as, as a lesser medium doing a horror film, a genre film where women turn into cats and, and mother and son have sex to feed on the energy of a virgin. Um, but your Shakespearean Elan, if I might say, was so big a part of this movie. I don't know, because I, I can't see that. All I could see was what was driving her. Right. The jeopardy she was in, her love for her son. Um, and, and, and her journey. So you, I, I guess what happens is that I try never to look at the character from the outside. Yeah. That's not my job. My job is to go through what she's going through. Yeah. Well, working with you was so easy because that trust was established early on. I knew you understood this part. We had discussions about that. We talked about playing the cat, that element of it as well. And it just was so joyous to come to the set every day with you and Machen and Brian and all, but knowing everybody was, was attacking this with full veracity, with, with, you know, full speed ahead. And that doesn't always happen within the genre. It does on my sets or else I'm not working with them. But it's, Yes. But I mean, that is the joy of it. That is the, the joy and the excitement and the discovery of the, unless you make that commitment, don't come to the set, don't, don't take it on, as far as I'm concerned, un mm -hmm. unless you're prepared to go the distance, um, just don't take it on. And there's but a great deal of bravery that comes with being an actor. To be a truly great actor, you have to be unafraid to reveal yourself. That's true. Um, the, the other thing that requires a, a degree of bravery, at any rate for me, I can speak only for myself, is that every time you take on a role, it's like stepping into the void. Because I don't know that I'm not going to fall off the tightrope. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no net. Yeah. There is no net. And I don't know whether or not she's going to show up. I really don't. It's an act of, of either extreme foolishness or great faith. I don't know which it is. Maybe it's both. <laughs> but interestingly, I have learned to, to love horror because of the scope that it offers. I, I, uh, several years ago, I, I think it was at the end of 2018, I worked on a picture called Gretel and Hansel. Yes, with Oz Perkins. Yeah. Yes, which I guess would be classed as horror. Definitely. But it it was all about the interior. Right. Interior horror for certainly for my character, the horror of who she had become and what she'd trapped herself in. Uh, and I've just I finished a picture at the end of 2019 which has only just begun to do the rounds of the festival called She Will. Hmm. Now that's 
supposedly horror as well, but it's, again, it's psychological horror, um, which I find enormously compelling because it's all about an interior landscape. And, and that is what is absolutely fascinating for, for an actor, is that interior landscape and how it, how, how the outside impacts it and how that then impacts the outside and drives the journey. Well, how great to have begun your studies in university in psychology. Well, yes, it's sort of exploring the same terrain from the opposite end of the telescope. Right. Now, tell me when that light blinked on. You were studying psychology and literature in a, in a general education uh, palette. Tell me when that light went on. Uh, you, you took this class because you needed to fill, uh, fill your resume. Um, was it taking it and it took a while or was it the first day you go, oh, drama is beautiful? No, I, you know, I'd done plays at school and, and I had danced with a passion. Yeah. I think I was a better actor than I was ever a dancer. So I yeah. did a lot of acting in my dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't remember. I think it was in my third year um, and I had three majors and I was working incredibly hard because there was a lot of practical work in the psychology course in the final year and the drama was you know I was in the theater from seven in the morning till midnight um, so there was an enormous amount of work and I had just been offered by the English, the professor of English, he said, we would like you to drop your other majors and we will fast track you an honors degree and I guarantee I will get you a place at Oxford University to do a master's. Wow. Because we'd like you to come and lecture at Rhodes in the English wow. department. And of course I told my parents and my father, it was an answer to his prayers. This was <laughs> the life he saw for me, a perfect life of academia, financial security, job security. Um, as far as my father concerned, it was concerned, it was a done deal. And I have to say it was out of enormous love for me and concern for my future welfare. I was sure. I was twenty one, with stars in my eyes. It was no sense of what the world actually was. And so I had this choice in front of me, and I was sitting in an English tutorial, um, and we were studying. So it was a group of. 10 students and a lecturer. And we were studying Blake's poem, O Rose Thou Art Sick. And it's an extraordinarily disturbing, beautiful, short lyric poem. And I became aware that I was the only person in the room actually totally engrossed by the poem. Mm. And 
enormously moved by what he was writing and what he must have been going through to write that poem. And everyone else was looking out of the window or doodling, kind of half paying, basically just there as bodies because they had to get this degree. And I thought, I can't, I cannot spend my life teaching students who wish they weren't in this classroom. Yeah, what a, what a choice. It became easy. Yeah, and I called my parents and I said, I'm going to major in drama. Drama's my major. I'm, <gasps> dropping, I'm dropping English because I had to drop something. Something I had to give. Ouch. And I was in a performance in the theatre that night. And when the curtain came down and I exited the stage door, my parents were standing at the stage door. They had driven 120K after work to ask me to reconsider, or my father had. My mother believed that I should be allowed to follow my dream. What she didn't realize was that it would meant that I would never come back home, ultimately, which truly broke her heart. But the die was cast. So that was that it actually was a particular moment. It was that moment. That's a powerful uh, metamorphosis time of your life. Yes, it was. Yeah. Because I I actually, much as I loved my father, I don't know where I got the gumption from, but I I went against his his better judgment. Right. That's a rough Which I'd never done before. I was, you know, I had never been a rebellious teenager. I was... I got the best grades. I was, I was, I was the perfect child until I said, no, I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, lucky for you and lucky for us that it all worked (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about your experience on ghost story, because it was, it was a very different kind of role. You played twins and uh, I remember I was doing publicity on that movie at the time. And on the day of Melvin Douglas's death, I was going through the photo book and there's a picture of him in the coffin the day that he passed away. Um, but it had to have been a really remarkable experience to work with these gentlemen and, and, and play twins in a very new career. It was extraordinary actually. Again, it was a sheer stroke of luck that got me the role. I was in England and I got a call from my agent saying, "Um, I'm going to send you a script and I I want you to go and meet this director. This is John Irvin. John Irvin had seen a lot of actresses in L.A., He was in LA casting and he flew back to England having not found anyone he wanted. And a a dear friend of his was was a casting director called Susie Figgis. And he arrived at Heathrow and he called Susie and he said, I'm having a really rough time. I just haven't found the person I want for this role. And Susie said, well, I saw a movie this morning I was looking at this picture called Chariots of Fire because 
I was looking at Charles, uh, uh, um, Ian Charlson, who played Eric Little, um, for Gandhi. I'm casting Gandhi, and I'd heard about this performance, and so they did a special screening for me. And there's an actress in it that no one has seen before, and she sounds like someone you might want to meet. I met him the next morning, and a day later they flew me to LA to meet the producer, Bert Weisbord. Mm. And they were very kind because I had a flight booked home for Christmas and they flew me to LA and they flew me from LA to South Africa and from South Africa back to start filming early January. So that again was just a, a total stroke of luck. Yeah. Um, but as to Ghost Story, I thought when I was given the script, how extraordinary. I get to play three versions of someone. The, the Alma Mobley version, the Ava version, and then she shows up as an apparition. Right. I thought, how what an extraordinary opportunity, I thought. It's, I had no idea actually how difficult the nudity was going to be. Yeah. Well, it's a, it, again, it's a very brave performance and uh, you are not lacking in artistic bravery. It was frankly terrifying. <laughs> I stood there, at, I was naked under a robe and I had to be looking out of a window at the sea in Florida. And uh, they were ready to roll and they said, right, you can drop the robe now. And I was standing there thinking, I never said I was beautiful. I never said I had a beautiful body. I, I'm not sure I should be doing this. Anyway, they said action and I dropped the role and I just did the scene. Um, but it was a fascinating challenge and it was the most extraordinary opportunity to work with perhaps the most gallant actors I've ever encountered. I would say that Morgan Freeman had a similar level of gallantry to those, it was four men or three men, it was John yeah, Hampton, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Um, Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire yeah. and, and, and Melvin me? Douglas. Melvin Douglas. Yeah. They were absolutely remarkable. They were utterly different as human beings, but each one, I don't know how to describe it other than gallantry. You know, Melvin Douglas had had uh, a heart attack the summer before, we shot mm. it in the winter, yeah. and he could not walk upstairs. Oh dear. And they, they for some reason needed to film him on, on the first floor of a building and he could not walk up the stairs. Oh. So he came, up with, he came up with an ingenious solution, which was, he said to them, why not put a chair in a forklift truck and I'll sit in the chair and you can forklift me up and I'll get through the window. Now, wow. he was an old guy. Yes. He had the flair and the imagination and the 
the bravery to, to take on with a weak heart. He did it with such lightness and such humor. I mean, they were extraordinary. The day we started filming, Fred Astaire's sister Adele died. Oh. They were extraordinarily close. And John Irvin came to set and said, I think it was overnight or the night before, Mr. Astaire has lost his beloved sister. He will not be coming to set today. But he came the next day and he never missed a beat. There was a scene, I don't know if you remember it, where, where Alma Eva appears as, a, as an apparition in the snow and his car turns over. Yes. Well, that was him. Wow. Crawling out of the car. It was 32 degrees below. He oh crawled out of the car into the snow. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was the most outrageous flirt. <laughs> One night he sat, we, we had, Craig and I had the extraordinary good fortune. We were in a vast old hotel. We, we were filming in Upper State, New York, um, Saratoga Springs. Uh, it's a racing town and a summer stock town. So it's a summer town, not a winter town. We were living in a vast mausoleum of a hotel called the Gideon Putnam. Mm -hmm. And it was completely great. closed down except for us. I mean, Sounds it, like the overlook, yeah. It was the spookiest. Everything was draped in sheets. They had <laughs> opened our suites and they opened the huge dining room. And there were all these ta empty tables and it was just us every night sitting around this big round table with them telling Hollywood stories. Craig and I sat there with our ears just flapping out on the stalks. All these stories they told about each other and other actors. It was absolutely amazing. And one evening we were sitting there and I became aware that Melvin Douglas was drawing. He was sketching very elaborate sketching, acting. And he was sketching me, oh. such a flirt. And he makes this big thing <laughs> of handing me the uh. sketch that he'd just drawn in me. Um, and then of course there was Pat, Pat Neal. And Pat hadn't worked for a while because she had been in this terrible coma. Yeah, she had had a stroke and it yes. really affected her health. Yes. Yeah. And when she came out, she wasn't didn't have difficulty speaking, but it had wiped out her ability to memorize lines. Oh. So she had someone with her who helped her remember the lines. And, and there were periods when we didn't have snow and they brought in the Olympic snowmaking team to make <laughs> us snow. But... Uh. There were some periods when, and we didn't work weekends. So there was a lot of waiting um, and there was nothing to do outside because it was, there was no snow, but it was 32 degrees below. Wow. And so Pat said to us over dinner one night, my favorite play is The Glass Menagerie. So Craig and I said, well, let's read it. And she and Craig and I and her assistant, 
read the play. Oh. And she was perhaps the most moving Amanda. That is the role of a mother, isn't it, Amanda? I yeah, think so. I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, the most moving performance oh. I could imagine. It was extraordinary. And she said, what? well, of course, I could never do it in the theater because I can't remember the lines. Oh, what an uh, extraordinary experience for you. You've got these actors with two centuries of experience among them. And you're new. You're in, what, your third movie, I think. And second, yeah. I mean, I did a little movie in South Africa when I was a student. So it was my second movie. Right. And just surrounded by Hollywood royalty of years past. Yeah. But it was a great experience for them, too, to be able to be in a contemporary horror thriller like this after having not had the opportunity to exercise those muscles in a long time. Right. And it was, except for Pat, it was the last piece of work any of them ever did. Yeah. And And they're all amazing in it. Yes. If you think about it, I actually had very few scenes with them. Right. Mostly with Craig. Yeah. Yes, and and with the young versions of them, their young counterparts. But John Irvin did something that I thought was so gracious and very perceptive as a director. He had us do a table read with them playing their young counterparts. Great idea. So I read through the the script with them. Wow. So I had one day where we had, we sat around a table and we took the script apart and we read it, um, which was a, an experience I will, or I will treasure forever. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, that is the movie that, that performance is the reason that I wanted you for Sleepwalkers. And I was so happy because you bring with it so many elements, you know, aside from, an obvious intelligence. There's a ferocity and a spookiness that you brought to to that role, those roles that uh, Mary Brady, Mary Brady was really open to interpretation. And you brought so much into that part. And I I, I would love to hear what your reaction was when you first read uh, the script that King had written. I didn't at all understand the potential of the world. Not at all. I also didn't see how satirical it was. Yes. I didn't get that at all. Yeah. It took meeting you to to drop the scales from my eyes to open my imagination. Yes, we had a sense of humor about this and there were no limits into where we could go. That's right. And I mean, it was the sense of humor, the, 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 the sly, satirical sense of humor in the writing and in what you did with it um, as a director. That I And think- yet the veracity that you bring to it and the seriousness with which you play that part is a reason the satirical elements work so well. I suppose, you know, I've, I, I, I must've watched it once, Mm. but I haven't seen it since. 
I, well, I, we have to change that. I don't go back. I don't go back and look at stuff. Um, but I, you know, it is one of the movies that I'm most recognized from. That's nice to hear. Yes. Yes. Well, I one come, of the someone comes round an aisle in a supermarket and they go, "Oh my God, you were the." The cat woman. <laughs> yes, yes, I was. Oh, how you were the you know? mother. Yeah. How did you know? <laughs> uh, I just saw Brian the other day, and uh, and he sends his love. But we talked about that scene, and uh, tell me about you know he was very uncomfortable about the scene where mother and son make love. And uh, it's not really making love. It's feeding yeah. mother with the energy That's from the virginal, right. uh, yeah. the virgin, Tanya. Yeah. So tell me about how you approached it. You said you were terrified with the nudity uh, in Ghost Story, but I assume you got used to it easily. Um, no, it you... was, you know, I got back from, we, we finished filming. We, we started in um, Saratoga Springs. Then we went down to Florida to shoot Alma. Yeah. And then we went to LA. We had a hi hiatus while we waited for the spring to come to New England yeah. for, for the apple tree sequences and such mm -hmm. like, the apple orchard sequence and the summer sequences um, or the spring sequences. And we had like four weeks in LA. And and I, my husband happened to be at Zoetrope at the same time. Mm. And I, he came to fetch me at the airplane and the car they'd sent for me um, took my luggage and he had a motorcycle and I went to his apartment on the back of the motorcycle and I came in the front door and I burst into tears. And he said, oh. what's the matter? And I, it was, the, the suppressed difficulty oh. of the nudity. And I, I wet my eyes out and got over it. And the studio called a week later and said, we want to do some special effects photography. So we need you to get naked again. Oh, <laughs> oh God, no. no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but I did. And it was all about, I don't know if they ever used it in the film, but the, the, the camera goes over her body like it's a, a, a desert landscape. You know, it's, it's such, a, it's a macro lens or something or whatever. Anyway, yeah. it doesn't look like my body until at the, ven at the end you realise it is. But nudity is never easy. It isn't. Um, it's never easy. I've, yeah. I've been naked on film several times because it was necessary. But oddly enough, in, in Sleepwalkers, it was probably the easiest of it all. Oh, good. Because you shot it at a distance, yeah. as I remember. It yeah. wasn't close up, was it? We, no, no. It was a long lens, or not a long lens. It was, we, it was a wide moving shot where you start right. at the mirror and go down to the clothing on the floor and then pan up along the bodies to reveal the faces. In a, in a That's it. Moving yeah. But it was, we were small in the frame, relatively, relatively speaking to the yeah. other stuff I had <laughs> yeah. done and the stuff I subsequently did. Um, yeah. 
Well, Brian said you made him feel very comfortable. Well, it was, it's, it's very, I don't know if the audience understands this. At any rate, I've never had, well, I did. There was quite a sort of hot and heavy sex scene in, in sleep, in ghost stories, I remember. Yeah, um, a lot very of sweaty, as I recall. That's right, rolling around. But you are so focused on the camera angles and what you're doing and the timing of it and that, and we weren't having sex or making love. It was a, it was a choreographed thing. Right. But you're acting at the same time. So there's an awful lot going on and you're being, my, you're being assessed by the cinematographer and the operator. I mean, they're, they're looking at the frame, they're looking at where you're in the frame. All of that makes it quite sort of, you're quite detached. There's a level of detachment right. um, to the, to, at any rate for me, with the process, doesn't mean you're not committed to it. You're a hundred percent committed to what's happening between you, but um, I don't. I really don't know how to describe it. Um, well, the performance overrides the lack of clothing. You know, you're exactly you're, you're yeah. in the moment, and you don't even think about, "Gee, I'm naked, and people are seeing this." Exactly. Yeah. No, you can't. You can't stop and think about that. Right. You've just got to be in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to focus on the nudity aspect of making movies, but it's something that's always a sensitive subject. You know, I, if there are nude scenes in something I'm going to direct, I, I make sure that an actor or actress is comfortable with it. And if they're not, I encourage them not to take the part. Yes. So, you know, yes. You, yeah. you have to. You have to be a human being first, but but you know you have such a broad uh, library of of films and television, and we basically have an hour, so I'm gonna try and stick to the genre stuff. Yes, and yeah. and your experience, particularly under makeup with Sleepwalkers, you had to do it a couple of times, even more so as the Borg Queen in Star Trek, which is another landmark role of yours. Um. I, I, on a certain level, although it's science fiction, she is a character out of someone's nightmare. So oh, yeah. she, could, she could be called horror. She's a little <laughs> subgenre all by herself inside of science <laughs> fiction. Um, well, the, the 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 I think the it. How many years on was that? It was about seven years on. Yeah, it was a handful of years later. And, and the, the, the actual prosthetics had become quite a lot more sophisticated. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but also, the, the, the wonderful thing about the Borg Queen um, was that the, the, the makeup artist who actually made the prosthetics, as I understand it, he had a general brief from the producers and the director uh, from Jonathan Frakes about what they had in mind. And of course, the Borg had already been established as characters. Um, so he had a sort of framework, but but he was the person who sculpted the, the, the little maquette. Um, and it was, as I understand it, 
a lot of it was his imagination. And he spoke to me before he did it, I think. It's a while ago now. Um, and he said, you know, what are your thoughts? This is what we have in mind. And I said, I just ask you to leave me as much of my face as possible. Yes. Um, and they were enormously clever in doing that. Um, the, the, the prosthetic was constructed, the head was, her head was constructed of, se of several separate pieces of prosthetics that were glued on in a sequence. And the, the head bit or the forehead bit that laid over the pipes and things was glued in the, 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 the where, where, where the, the top of the eye socket, yeah. Yes, where the eyelid creases. So it covered my eyebrows, right? And, right. and went up and lay over the head. Um, and they, when, when he showed me the maquette, very sweetly, they didn't have to do this, but they, Scott called me in and said, take a look, here's the maquette. And I said, I think it's amazing, except for the one thing I ask you to remove is that they had drawn in eyebrows. Mm. So it was like Cruella Deville's eyebrows. You have one expression. Yeah. Exactly. I said, you, you are giving me one, one look. Yeah. Can you just take them away? And, and, and by all means, we stick it over my eyebrows. But they were so fine, the prosthetics, that there was mobility in them. Yeah, but and that's it, one of the most striking elements is the lack of eyebrows. It, it really yeah. gives it a haunting and, and interesting quality, especially because you can move. Exactly. And, and he had to get permission to take the eyebrows away, but they all said that was okay. Um, and, and it took, to begin with, when we did it on film, it was much quicker subsequently for Voyager. Um, it took an seven hours to put on I oh think my god was. oh and two hours to take off that's or six hours six hours to put on and two hours to take off and an hour to put on the costume because i was glued into the i was stitched into the costume and then glued into it oh but I my have, god i have to tell you that it was a gift because by the time it was on and we put in those lenses I felt as if she had showed up and I was just a channel. Mm. It was a portal into the character for me. They, they gave me a gift on a plate because the truth is you can't imagine the character aside from what she looked like. Can you? No. Absolutely not. Yeah. No. So well, tell it's a collaborative performance, if ever there was one. Yeah. With me and Scott Wheeler and Todd Masters and everyone. I had a I had seven people. I called them my ball wranglers because they <laughs> they kept me intact. Every time they called cut, seven people would descend upon me to to to, to service the, the makeup and the suit. Amazing. Well, tell me about the experience of stepping into something that was already so vast an empire. The Star Trek world had been going for years, continues to this day. Um, 
stepping into something where you were a stranger in a strange land. I knew very little about Star Trek because I had grown up without television in South Africa. They didn't have it when I it yeah. arrived the year after I left. Oh, so I, I had done as quick a catch up as I could, but there wasn't much time. And I had to think about the Borg Queen. Um, they were so welcoming. They could not have been kinder. They, they were a, the next generation are a, a truly lovely, affectionate group. They, they liked each other. They got on like a house on fire. They hadn't worked together for, for two years. Um, it, was, it was absolutely wonderful. They could not have been kinder. And Brent was enormously generous with his time um, because they'd all gone off to film by the time I was cast. And so Brent gave me time on the studio lot to, to chat about Data and the Ball Queen, which was enormously helpful. Um, they were, they were, they were wonderful. They were wonderful. And you're you're and part of the Star Trek team now. You know, you are a memorable, uh, a memorable character in a vast cast of memorable characters. Yes, and and I have to say that occasionally I go to the conventions, yeah. and I love going to them. I love going to them because I okay. love that people come dressed up. Yeah. And that they've learned Klingon. I love it because grown-ups don't play. And I think we should. I get well, to play all the time. <laughs> well, what's interesting about genre films, horror, science fiction, fantasy, um, those are the characters that stick with us throughout our lives. Chariots of Fire is a great film. It's not something where people come to a convention to get your signature because they remember you in it. So tell exactly. me about what you think the appeal is aside from villains, which you have done. It's just the fantastic and the fanciful. Uh, what do you think the appeal of those characters is to the audience? Because those are the ones that stick with you for the rest of your life. I think some of them, the ones that are, really well-written. And I think, for example, Mary was one. Um, the Borg Queen is another. Possibly Ava in, yeah. in, in um, or the, yeah. the, the Ava Alma sort of constellation, as it were. Yeah. Um, they strike like a bell being struck, an archetype that's part of our collective unconscious. I think it resonates on some deeper level and it, like, like the myths, the Greek myths, that they are ancient stories. And sometimes these huge characters in horror um, particularly if they're very well written, um, strike that note that resonates with us on some level that's beyond the intellectual, beyond the rational. And I think it's that reverberation um, that, that's, that, that's kind of primal, 
and and emotional um, that that makes them memorable. Yeah, well said. You know, and you've played in such a variety of these movies. Uh, again, Ghost Story, Sleepwalkers, Star Trek, Gretel and Hansel, Silent Hill. Um, oh my goodness, and, Silent Hill. Yes. Yeah. So tell me about that experience as well. Silent Hill, I think, is perhaps the only movie I regret. Really? Tell me. Because Christabella. You know, she is about as close as in reality. She, she is a, a character out of horror that, that could exist in the world. Right. And that's what's so terrifying about her. So it was too close to real life villainy that you regret. Well, well, I, I just, I, one has this horror that, that somehow... The, the, the madness of Christabella will flip a switch in someone. Because mm. um, she is so close to a, a, an actual human being. I mean, the Borg Queen is definitely the Borg Queen. Right. There's you know, no one Ma but the Borg Mary, Queen. Mary, Mary Brady might be an archetype, and she is, or she strikes a note that sets archetypes reverberating in our unconscious or our collective unconscious. But Christabella could be for real. Did um, you have anyone in mind in particular when you were portraying Christabella? No, no, um, I just, went down, I peeled as many layers of the onion as I could. And I must tell you, it was quite terrifying. We shot in Toronto and um, the last two weeks of the shoot for me um, was just the burning. We were in this set that was the church and day after day, we shot the burning stuff. Mm. And, and by that point, Christabella was mad as a dog. I mean, foaming. Yeah. I mean, terrifying, actually. So you tapped uh, into something really deep. Well, I yeah, you know, I say sometimes I become a channel and I, I think I was a channel for something quite dark. Yeah. I would go home to the hotel at night and I would think you've just got to meditate, you've got to do yoga, but I couldn't, I just couldn't. And you know, when I came home, I had a little dog called Skipper. Mm -hmm. It's a little black dog, little rectangular black dog, a Dutch barge dog. And Skipper was not a demonstrative dog but she would wait for me when I was gone. She would wait at the gate. She had a jade bush and she made a little hollow under it and she sat under the jade bush and waited for me. And I would be gone weeks and Skipper would come out there and hang out by the gate. And the car dropped me off in the parking area outside the house. And there was Skipper 
doing a full body wag. <laughs> and I walked up to the gate and she stopped wagging and she looked at me and she backed off and left. Wow. She would have nothing to do with me. Three weeks later, I went off to shoot in Bulgaria. When I came back from Bulgaria, it was like Skipper said, okay, so now you've come home. Wow. And my husband said to me, you need to see a body worker because Christabella has come home with you. Wow. It's the only time it's ever really happened. Well, let's hope it remains so. <laughs> yes, it, it was, it was, yeah, it, 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 eventually I felt enveloped in darkness. I really did. Wow. Well, we have barely touched the surface of the life and times of Alice Krieger. <laughs> I really appreciate joining us here. And just to see you again, it's been way too long and we have to do it in person as soon as we can. Oh, I do hope we will. I do Thank hope you. we will. What a Thank joy. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.